Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study as we are continuing our study through the uh, Old Testament. And uh, we just finished uh, with the uh, book of Isaiah, kind of jumped through it a bunch, but then we hit that real meaty part, we stayed there for a while. Uh, And now we're going to continue on, we're trying to give you a sense of uh, the books of the uh, Old Testament uh, as they were written. And not everybody agrees actually on all the order of these things. So if if you have a different version of the order, it doesn't really matter. But we're kind of doing our best guess. The uh, Bible is not in chronological order. I do not know why not. I'm sure someone somewhere has an intelligent answer to that. I do not know. The Old Testament is not in chronological order. Neither is the New Testament. I would think it would have been a little helpful. But what do I know? Um... Uh, interestingly enough, both the Old and the New Testament begin with the first books written and end with the last book that was written. In between, is kind of all mixed up a bit. So, Anyway, we're taking a look at it. Now, we are, uh, after Isaiah, uh, we go back to now some minor prophets. And these three guys are one right after the other. And interestingly enough, they are in order in the Bible. It starts with Nahum, a little tiny book. You might even have to look in your... Uh, table of contents to find where it is. It's kind of page 909 on my Bible. But uh, Nahum. Now, uh, let's take a look at this. An oracle concerning Nineveh. So he's a prophet talking about Nineveh. Have we heard about Nineveh before? Yes, indeed. Now, you remember God had prophesied because of Israel's sin. We got the uh, nation, the uh, Jewish people were split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, known as Israel, where the ten tribes were at. Then uh, you had uh, um, Judah. Who was the other little kingdom? A little tiny... I can't remember whoever. But anyway, two uh, guys in the southern kingdom. Mostly Judah and Israel. You'll hear the Bible throughout in the Old Testament referring to Judah and Israel. Basically, they're two kingdoms. They were united under King David. Uh, and for most throughout uh, um, uh, Solomon... But then, boom, they come ripping apart and a lot of it had to do with God's judgment on uh, for sin in the lives of, of their leaders. But uh, uh, God, the prophets had prophesied that uh, uh, they knew that Nineveh was going to come and destroy Israel, the northern kingdom. Then we remember the story of Jonah, where Jonah, God told Jonah to go tell him to repent. Well, Jonah didn't want to go tell him to repent. And it wasn't because he was afraid to preach the gospel that analogies often made and stuff like that. And the reality is he knew that if he told them to repent and they'd repent, God would forgive them and God wouldn't kill them and then they would come and kill Israel. That was exactly his motivation. And if you read, uh, as we did, the uh, uh, book of Jonah, you'll see at the end, he's ticked off at God for being forgiving. I knew it. I knew you'd forgive him. You know? And anyway, and of course, sure enough, uh, Nineveh comes, destroys Israel and takes him off. Well, now... Nineveh, who repented at that time, has become arrogant again, and now he's, they're going to get theirs. And I'm sure it was of great satisfaction at some level for Nahum to be able to prophesy against Nineveh. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, which is an interesting thing because 
people oftentimes think because God doesn't, you know, judge them right away that there's either no God or it's no big deal. You know, sometimes you'll even hear non-Christians who are, are very anti-faith, you know, get up and say something blasphemy. You know, well, if there was a God, let him strike me dead right now. You know, they'll make comments like that. Oh, see, he didn't strike me dead, you know. So uh, what they need to know is, lucky for them, the Lord is very patient, very slow. It's, it takes a bit to tick God off, is what it says. The Lord is slow to anger. It takes a lot to tick him off. Okay, he's not an old crotchety old man that has a bad attitude. You know, you got to be real careful around God because he's really ticked off. He's in a bad mood. You know, like a, you come on, Dad would be really mad. You know, give me your quiet around Dad, man. He's in a bad, bad way. God is not like that. So those of you who feel bad all the time because you make mistakes and you fail and you're struggling in Christianity and you're convinced God is angry at you, just relax. God will deal with you. He will work with you. It takes a lot to tick off God. If you doubt that, just go back and read what we've been reading in the uh, First and Second Kings. These guys were wicked at a level that just, even some of you nice people here would kill these people. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were so bad. But even then, God did. Now, he was patient and patient. And he said, I'll forgive you if you'll just get it right. And, he, and it wasn't until they had gone so far for so long that God just could not take it. It takes a lot to take off God. Don't let the devil whisper in your ear that God's mad at you because you don't pray enough or because you're getting mad or you did something you shouldn't have done or forgot to do something you should have done. And, you know, just relax. Thankfully, gloriously, we have a wonderful, patient God who loves us very, very dearly. It takes a whole lot to tick him off. And there's nothing you can do that he hadn't seen before, okay? And it's not going to freak him out. He will be patient. Not to say he won't knock you upside the head. You know, the Bible talks about the discipline of the Lord. But that's different than the judgment of God. There's a difference between judgment and discipline. Discipline is just smack him up and say, stop it! Okay? And God will give you a butt whipping sometimes, man, just to straighten you out. Okay? But that's different than judgment. You, you want, the Bible says actually you want to be in a place where God will discipline you. This is a great thing because it proves that you're a son of God. Because God only disciplines those that he loves, the Bible says. What you don't want to do is get into the judgment of God. Because when God comes judging, hochi mama, look out. It's not a good place to be and you should fear dearly. Uh, so anyway, he's laying this out and he starts prophesying to Nineveh. And uh, Nineveh, at this point, I mean, these guys were really, 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 really mean people. And they were arrogant as they could possibly be. When this army came in, they were, they were brutal. Uh, they would uh, take uh, uh, bodies, dead bodies, and just pile them like cordwood. Uh, they'd take skulls and make gigantic uh, pyramids from the skulls. I mean, these guys, they, they loved to... Uh, 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 capture the leaders, slowly torture them in the most brutal of ways before they kill them. I mean, these guys were really, really, really nasty. And uh, so he's prophesying against them. Jump to chapter 3 because we don't need to read the entire thing. And um, Chapter 3 kind of really <laughs> sums it up pretty good. He says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, and jolting chariots. 
charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. It was quite an impressive, intimidating army these guys had. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. You know, these guys get very poetic as they start, and it's kind of hard to follow sometimes when they're doing their thing. But uh, anyway, these are bad guys. And uh, God says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now check out what God says. I am going to lift your skirts over your face. Now this is not an attack on the ladies. All men had basically skirts that they wore. Pants was kind of a, didn't really become in vogue till about the 19th century. Although it was around for a long time, different people would wear pants, but it was a little, little rare. Uh, everybody had these, you know, flowing robes and stuff like that. And God basically says, I'm going to lift your skirts over your face. Basically show everybody your yeehaw. Okay. And I will show the nakedness, uh, your, no, the nations, your nakedness, and the kingdom, your shame. I will pelt you with filth. <laughs> so he's going to pull up their drawers so everybody can see them and pelt them with caca. This is, this is pretty strong language, you know. But, you know, I always get a kick out of it because I've, I've never quite understood. We're going to get this when we get to uh, Ezekiel, which is virtually X-rated. And, uh, and I will warn you not to bring your children in at the beginning of that service. I'll give you one song to get them out because it's... Uh, uh, but it's amazing to me how so many Christian pastors and leaders and churches are so afraid to talk about things like nakedness and sex and stuff like that when God was so graphic about it. And in Ezekiel, it's not just a prophet talking, it's God in the first person talking and says stuff that should make a normal person vomit when we get there. Wait till you see it. You will hardly be able to believe what you will hear. But uh, here again, I mean, he just, you know, basically the, the visual is quite clear. <laughs> what he's going to do, I will make a, I will treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle, all of you. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh's in ruins, who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? These are all prophecies, obviously, because none of this has happened yet. Uh, they think everything is great. Everything's going fine. And then uh, the prophet says, are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense. The water's her wall. Cush and Egypt were boundless, were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she was taken captive captive and went into exile he's basically speaking to them of the, the this great nation that had everything going for but yet it fell you know, don't be so arrogant when you uh when these people think that god couldn't take them out uh yet she was taken in a, a captive went in exile her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street lots were cast for her nobles and all of her great men were put in chains you too will become drunk you will go into hiding seek refuge from the enemy all your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Again, getting poetic. <laughs> look at the, This is all the Lord still talking. It's in the context of the Lord talking. And look at the insult. Look at your troops. They're all a bunch of girls. They're a bunch of girly men. They're all women. 
The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire is consumed. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Ooh, work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There, the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down. And like grasshoppers consume you. Oh, multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials are like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. O king of Assyria. This is the king. Assyria, Nineveh is their capital. Your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you clasps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? That was a prophecy. And it all came to pass. Nineveh was destroyed. And as far as I know, was never ever rebuilt again. That was the end of Nineveh. All right, as we're going along, uh, next prophet that comes along is Habakkuk. Again, these guys are called minor prophets, not because what they had to say was minor, but I think primarily because of such tiny little writings that they had. That was it. That name wrote down, and Habakkuk is just as shorter, shorter. Now, Habakkuk is a little bit different. Um, oftentimes, these guys would, uh, uh, you know, be speaking to the people or being God's oracle speaking to the people, they'd be challenging them and stuff like that. Well, Habakkuk is a, is a different, because what we read in Habakkuk is basically he's arguing with God. And he writes down this argument that he has with God. This is the little book of Habakkuk. So the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, and this is his complaint against God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence! Look at the violence! But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. You know, you hear people sometimes, you know, say, well, why does God let bad things happen? What? You know, and everybody struggles with these kinds of things. Trust me, you're not the first one to have this conversation with God. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now what he's bemoaning now, the Nineveh stuff dealt with Israel. Habakkuk is bemoaning the state of Judah. Because Judah has become so wicked. Despite what they saw in their brethren to the north. And God's judgment, they remained arrogant Every once in a while as we read through Kings, there'd be a good king that would pop up and God would withhold his judgment. But, you know, they, they wouldn't stop. And, uh, and basically saying, God, what, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Why, why aren't you doing something about uh, Judah? So then the Lord answers. Verse 5, he says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told. Uh, why this would be unbelievable to, to him at this time, I don't know. I don't know the history of it. And quite frankly, I don't want to study it. It's too boring. But anyway, he says, I am raising up the Babylonians. So God says, I'm raising up the Babylonian empire. 
that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping down to devour. Again, the guys get very poetic. You understand the poetic thing. They're using analogies. Their horses didn't really fly. In case you were wondering. Um, they've all, they're all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings, scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. Ha ha ha! They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength, whose own strength is their God. Well, so he's complaining, God, what are you going to do about this? He says, hey, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm raising up these Babylonians. They're serious butt kickers. Wait till you see these cats. They are nasty. Uh, okay, but now they know of the Babylonians. They know they're evil. And, and, and Habakkuk re- replies to him basically, what? The Babylonians? You're going to use a really wicked nation to discipline a nation that's more righteous than they are. We shall see. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One. We will not die. Oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? Why the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's basically complaining. Why are you using... Someone so bad, that's even worse than the people you're disciplining. And make no mistake, God will do whatever he wants to do. And God will use whoever he wants to use. God can use anybody. He can even use you. Amen. God one time even used a jackass. Which shows there's hope for your husband. Ha 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 ha. God can, uh, seriously, I mean, God, he, he could make, he made the donkey talk. What did Jesus say when they said, quit tell, tell your disciples to quit praising you? He says, hey, if I tell them to quiet down, the rocks themselves will cry out. Moral of that story is you can be replaced with a rock. You want to be in a place where God can use you. Somebody say amen. amen. And he will use you. And if you refuse to be used... God will use somebody else. Now, here's a great analogy. I think sometimes God speaks to the righteous in the kingdom of God about supporting and advancing his kingdom in their area of finances. And oftentimes they are resistant and rebellious and just will not do it. They harden their hearts to God. They want to keep every little penny they have for themselves. Um, By the way, we will all deal with that someday. Make no mistake. But then sometimes God will speak to some heathen. Some heathen businessman or something will come along and give, write a big check. It happens all the time. Guys who just, for no reason at all, just walk in and they'll, they'll they, they give it. I've, I've known of guys like this that you would not expect in a million years writing huge checks to advance righteousness. But we all praise God for that. And we do. And we thank God for that. But I can't help wonder if sometimes what God has done is use the Babylonians because 
the Jews would not listen. The people of God. Are you hearing me? You know, if you're not going to do, God will use somebody else. And don't think you're just off the hook when he uses somebody else. You know, we need to be obedient to the word of God. Somebody say amen. All right. So we'll oftentimes see God use some of the strangest people on the face of the earth to advance his kingdom. There you have it. Then blah, 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 blah. I don't want to read all that. Uh, Then the Lord answers. um, Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false, though it linger. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Wait for it. It will come. Kind of reminds me of Jesus Speaking of the end time, be patient. I will return. When, when, when? When you least expect. Just be patient. Be patient. Prophecies seem like such a distant thing until they, until they happen. Um, he talks of this uh, Babylonian nation, verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Which, by the way, is a verse quoted in the New Testament where Paul writes and he says, the just shall live by faith. If you ever remember that in the New Testament, talking about being justified not by what we do, but what we... And he says, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk right there. Uh, Anyway, you know, indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant, never rest because he's greedy as the grave. Again, very poetic on and on and on and on um, verse 14 this is kind of a, this this verse is often quoted as a prophecy a lot of people believe either of God pouring out his spirit on the earth bringing great revival or talking about the end time when the millennial reign of Christ will come uh, Pretty famous verse of scripture. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Lots of songs have been written on this verse. Where does it come from? Habakkuk, right there. And again, these prophets, they'll go along, they'll speak poetically, they'll make local references. It's kind of hard to follow them. You know, then all of a sudden they'll start speaking about something that's going to happen, like Isaiah, I mean him. You know, something that's going to happen in 100 years, something's going to happen in 500 years, something that's going to happen 2,000 years, 3,000 years. I mean, it's like, all like one verse after the other and trying to figure it all out. It doesn't even make sense until it has happened. And then the stuff that hasn't happened yet, you just figure, okay, well, that's going to come when Jesus comes back, I mean, well, pretty, pretty interesting stuff, okay? So anyway, um, that's pretty much it. Anyway, you know, basically, all, what he's saying is, I'm going to come, I am going to deal with Judah, and uh, it's not going to be pretty. And uh, I'm going to use the Babylonians, I'm raising them up, be patient, it's coming. You know, and God, oh, really, the Babylonians? You know, he questions that, and God talks to him, and you can read that on your own. Okay, then we get to Zephaniah. I like Zephaniah. I don't know that I'd want to name one of my kids Zephaniah, but it's a great book. I'll tell you why I like it. Because it's clear. Very clear. He's not very poetic. He doesn't 
break into prophecies, like in the middle of a verse, all of a sudden, talk about something's going to happen far away. It's pretty clear when Zephaniah, it doesn't need a lot of explanation to read Zephaniah. So let's take a look at Zephaniah, one of the easiest books of the prophets to read because it's so black and white and and very clear, not terribly uh, poetic. Uh, you might jump into a little bit here and there, but it's pretty clear. Let's take a look. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, during the reign of jo- Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. We read about him in when we are going through uh, Kings. Uh, and then he starts to prophesy the word of the Lord. And it's all bad. It's all negative. And it's all pointed at Judah. Here's, here's where you really get a picture of how ticked off God is before he finally brings in and wipes them off the face of the earth, as it were. Or, uh, eventually, he brings them all back again. We'll get into those prophets, uh, maybe even starting next week, as, as we take a look at the, the restoration after them being taken off into captivity. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, uh, he says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal. This was the false prophets that they would worship. The names of the pagan and idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts. Those who are into astrology and all this other witchcraft-like stuff. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord, but also swear by Molech, which is also a false god. This, it really ticked the Lord off. That See, they, were, they didn't completely ignore everything about God, but they basically prostituted themselves they they would worship the lord but yet still be doing stuff and worshiping other gods and stuff like that you know obviously we don't have those kinds of problems today but make no mistake there's a big temptation even today for for people of faith to want to serve god and come to church and worship and do kind of the right things but then still live like hell come on still live like hell hating bitterness unforgiveness sexual sins on and on we could list ad nauseum who have one foot in God, one foot in hell, and they get themselves in big trouble. It's a bad place to be. This was one of the problems that these guys had. Continues to describe these guys, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. He's prophesying of this horrible sweeping army that will come in and just destroy all of Jerusalem. And the people within it and take whoever left and take them off into captivity. Uh, Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All you who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. Who are like wine left on its dregs. Who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered. Their houses demolished. They will build houses 
but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails entrails like filth oh man see it's pretty clear Zephaniah doesn't need a whole lot of you know there's not a lot of poetry going on like these other cats you know going and trying their little analogies and stuff like that and, and making references you don't I mean he is just Picked off. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. Actually, their world. It'll be the whole world to them. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble. Of the land, even in the midst of, you know, how often we would see the prophets prophesy horrible, horrible things. But then I will restore you if you'll turn. You know what I'm saying? They were always jumping back and forth like this. Well, here the context pretty much is: I'm coming, I'm doing serious butt kicking, and now he's just appealing to those who still have some degree of humility and righteousness in them, and says, "Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do not, who do what He commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps." Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So this is really taking on a different turn now. There's not a lot of reasoning like Isaiah would say. Come let us reason together says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Come on you guys. Stop. I will forgive you. I will restore you. La la la. By the time we get to Zephaniah. It's pretty much just butt kicking. And even the good guy says. To the good guys. Seek the Lord. Maybe. Maybe he will shelter you on this day. Not even a promise that he would. Wow. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea where the Carathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens. Basically, humiliating them you know you're this big glorious city you're basically going to be a barn okay it will belong to the remnant of the house of judah talking about when they will return there they will find pasture in the evening they will lie down by the way god has always had a remnant i love that about the bible even at the times when you think uh uh who was it elijah elisha one of these guys who thought they were the only one left i think it was elisha uh elijah and the Lord said, hey, take it easy. You're not the only one left. I've got however many hundreds of prophets here. God has always had, even in the worst of times, a remnant of people who would be true to him. And that's always been that way throughout history. Uh, anyway, for the Wadsworth Department. Verse 8. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, 
a place of... So he basically starts speaking judgment and damnation against the Moabites and the Ammonites. As he, uh, then against the Cushites, verse 12. You too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. Then he hollers at Assyria again. He will stretch out his hand, in verse 13, against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate. See, Nineveh still has not fallen. It's another prophet coming along saying, you're going to get yours. So he's really turning up the ratchet toward the, 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 uh, to the Jews. And then he talks about the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Assyrians. Then chapter 3, talking again about the future of Israel. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. By the way, something you want to be careful about. Uh, try and be the kind of person who can accept correction. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it, including me. Don't like it. But uh, the Bible says, rebuke a fool and he will tear you to pieces. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you for it. We need to be wise. I must admit, for the better part of my life, I've been pretty much in the foolish category. And the Lord has had to gloriously smack me upside the head for many, 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 many years to soften me up. But boy, you want to be in a place. Don't freak out when someone comes to you and challenges you in your thinking. We all do it. We all become defensive. It's just human nature. But one of the things that we don't want to be is driven by human nature. We want to be driven by the divine nature. And the divine nature is open to correction. You can always tell people who are uh, brilliantly wise. They're always asking honest input into their lives. And I confess openly before you, I don't like doing that. I don't like being criticized. I really don't. Because I really like me. I'm one of my biggest fans. You know what I'm saying? I think, I think brilliantly. And then when someone comes and corrects me, I I don't like it. But at the end of the day, I've got to eat it and say, okay, 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 I got to learn. I got to grow. We've got to stay open. Stay open. It reminds me, I have, a, I have a great friend who's a, a Tom Washaka. Some of you musicians might know him, a saxophone player that comes and helps uh, once in a while. He is probably, well, not probably, he's probably, he is the most brilliant musician I've ever had the privilege ever to work with. He's borderline genius. I think he is genius. He's, it's incredible what goes in that boy's head. I, I've, I'm sure there's people, there's always somebody smarter than somebody somewhere, you know what I'm saying? But as far as me and all the years that I've been a musician and working with, there's been no one who as brilliantly creative and insightful musically as this guy. It's scary, okay? But I'll never, I, when I first time, can I work, we worked very closely together for years, you know, probably at least 10 years, maybe longer, 15 years, uh, when I was just doing music. Uh, and, uh, um, I used to be so amazed because here is this guy who, compared to me, I am an idiot wrapped up in a moron, okay? I mean, you know, I mean, I play nicely and, and better than, than the average bear, you know, and, and I can hold my own and I can actually fake the illusion of competence as a musician. Two most people will think, well, he's quite brilliant, okay? But I know me. I'm really not all that smart, as like compared to this guy, this guy 
is, and I'll, it used to stun me because he would come and he would ask my advice about music. And well, what do you think about this? And I'd come up and say, well, for me, I'd, I'd do this with the melody like that. And he'd go, that's a great idea. And he'd run off of it and just make it brilliant. I thought, how do you get like that? How can you be that brilliant and that insightful and that skillful, but still willing to take the opinion of a nitwit? Okay, this is a person who's comfortable in his own skin, knows who he is, and it's pretty unusual. Most musicians, those of you are musicians, if you're honest like I am to some degree, will admit we're some of the most insecure, paranoid people on the face of the earth, you know. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. You know, it's, you know, musicians working with musicians is like, you know, trying to herd cats. You know, because everybody's so sensitive. The thing that makes them so brilliant and and emotive and how they can communicate and come up here and worship and lead and inspire. Trust me, working with them can be quite the trial. Good news is I don't have to do it anymore. Hallelujah. Anyway, I love you all, but I'm glad I don't have to deal with you anymore. Just other than as a pastor. But, uh, and, and because, you know, musicians, they'll get their undies in a bunch and, you know, he da 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 and they didn't like this and they didn't say this just right, da 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 But here is this guy, again, the most brilliant musician I've ever worked with. And he was always open to maybe what he could have done better. And, oh, you didn't like that? Maybe they're, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't have. Man, and I, I, I always, when I'd see that with him, I said, Lord, make me more like that. Because this is a sign of righteousness. This is the kind of person who's constantly open to correction. Constantly open to insight. Who willfully humbles to people who obviously have a tenth of the intelligence this guy has, musically speaking. And receives input from them and advice. And, 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 but it's one of the reasons he keeps getting so good. You see what I'm saying? Now spiritually, we ought to be that way. Again, it's hard for a lot of us. A lot of us, you know, when we were being raised, you know, maybe you were in homes that uh, always told you you were an idiot and you were no good and you didn't know what you were doing. And at some point, you set up a wall and then you kind of protect yourself. Uh, and, and I understand that. I, I, I think I had some of that too. And, and even, even as a pastor, you know, because you have to understand, for most of my adult life, I was told by all the other pastors in my life, I could never be a pastor. All of them. They all told me I couldn't be because I was too weird. And, so, and, and quite frankly, they're right, you know. <laughs> I am weird, but apparently I'm not too weird because it is possible for me to pastor, you know. Because most of them, you know, they... You can't get up there, Mr. Ha ha ha, like that, very inappropriate, you know, making jokes in the pulpit, you know, and all that stuff. You know, and I, I wasn't cut from the same cloth they were. And gave, so it's, it was easy for me to kind of set up a wall around myself where it's hard for me to take input. I'm just being honest with you. I'm telling you, we need to do more. I'm just being honest with you that I still have trouble with this. But we do need to be the kind of people that people can speak into our lives, challenge us, say, I'm not sure you're really right about that. Why don't you think about that? And we need to be more open. And uh, one of the mar- marks on Israel is that, as the prophet says, she would accept no correction. And that's people who are really in a bad place. You can't tell them anything. They're always right. They're always right. You know? And, and by the way, don't, don't be so stiff. Like, what was the last time you said the words, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Huh? When was the last time you said that? Seven words. You're right. I was wrong. 
I'm sorry. Some of you have never said it. Everyone repeat after me. You're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. See, you didn't die. You said it and you didn't die. I mean, let's be a little bit more humble. Let's, you know, it's not going to kill you to say to your husband, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. To say to your wife, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. To say to your boss, some idiot who works for you, somebody somewhere, you know what, at the end of the day, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. If you can't say that, you will never grow. You'll never grow. You'll just be a stiff, some, I don't know, I don't have a word for it. I thought of stuffed burrito came to my head. I don't know why, but you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what goes on up here. Now you know why the other pastors thought I couldn't pass her. All right, now. Uh, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord, does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his judgment. Every day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous, no, no shame. Because they can never say, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Anyway. On and on. I mean, it's just, it's so clear. That's why it's so easy to read Zephaniah. There's not a lot of gray area with Zephaniah, no? What does that little, you know, thing mean here? And what is that little poetic reference and, you know, analogies? Uh, boy, not a whole lot of that. Pretty, pretty, pretty clear. Let's jump to verse 14 as we wrap this up. Sing. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The king of Israel is with you. Speaking again of the eventual restoration. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day you will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feast I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you and at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth. I will restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Even after this brutal, brutal butt whipping that he speaks and just lashes them to bits, he still ends with, I will restore you. It's not hopeless. Uh, Still not a whole lot of things trying to uh, reason with him to repent at this point. That seems to be very, very absent by this point. I think at this point, it was going over the cliff. It wasn't going to stop. The judgment was coming, and what a brutal, brutal, not beautiful, brutal judgment it was. It was so stunning and so severe and had such an impact on the psyche of the nation. That is interesting that as often, I mean, all this time, 
these guys struggled with idolatry. They couldn't stay away. They were always worshiping false gods. Always getting caught up in the gods that were around them. Always sinning with the same sins over and over and over again. But after this serious butt whipping, it's like it jerked them clean. They did not struggle anymore after this with idolatry. By the time they came home, when, when Jesus showed up, a few hundred years later, they weren't worshiping idols. They weren't doing that. They were playing it straight. They still were not an independent state. They were being oppressed by the Romans or under occupation of the Romans and stuff like that. But really from that time on, it's as if this poison of idolatry and getting caught up in all of the other things around them uh, seemed to have been purged from them. There you go, okay? So, next week, we'll pick it up and see who's next on our list. Uh, we're going to be getting into, uh, I think Daniel's coming up. That's a fascinating book, uh, talking about, because Daniel writes from the position of being one of those, I believe, from the northern tribes, Israelites, that were taken into captivity. Uh, and then we see his experience as, uh, as, as they're basically uh, being taken away from the land of Israel. But uh, some fascinating stuff. And then uh, we're going to read the story of how God brings them all back. What were the details? How did it happen? What was it like for them uh, to come back and to see their land totally devastated and destroyed some 75 years or whatever it was later where they came back and then they rebuilt it. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the walls. It's a fascinating story. Uh, and that pretty much wraps. We'll get right to the end of the Old Testament and then we get back into the new. Anyway. We are done. God bless you all.